Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waldrop. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom-built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. Cameron is living proof that dreams can actually come true. With a dash of serendipity and a whole lot of gumption, Cameron wound up working at the studio he always wanted to work at. But his path there wasn't easy. He endured a lot of struggle and strife, but never stopped pursuing his destiny, no matter what the circumstance was. Uh, I don't want to say anything else, really. I think the episode will speak for itself. Uh, only thing I'll say is if you need some inspiration in your own life, no matter what's going on, you pick the perfect episode to listen to. Before we begin, I just want to point out we did have a couple of technical issues with this episode, but it's nothing earth shattering. It's not going to ruin your listening experience, but I did want to give uh, y'all a heads up about that. But content wise, this is a truly fantastic episode. We hope you enjoy it. I'll see you after the show to wrap things up. Well, so Cameron, is, is game games always been something you wanted to get into or did you find that out a little later in life? When did you know I got to try and get into this business? Oh, man, super early. Uh, so I'm an only child and uh, Same. early, early on. Represent. Yeah. So you, uh, I imagine we might have similar experiences. Uh, but uh, did you find that in childhood, like uh, you were seeking out friendships and, and trying to make uh, as many friends as possible since you didn't have siblings to you know hang out with? Oh, it was weird. I always had like a small group of friends and I was kind of content with that. I was never like, I was never one who wanted a sibling because I kind of liked being a little bit of an isolationist, but not too much. So I was never like really going out trying to make a ton of friends or anything, but it was always good to have some friends because yeah, you know, sometimes it can get a little, little lonely even if you prefer to be kind of on your own sometimes. Yeah. So I can definitely relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I, I had a very similar experience. Like I, I have a lot of uh, acquaintances, uh, and I find myself, you know, making a lot of friends. But I'm deeply drawn to like having really interpersonal, uh, deep connections, right? Uh, and so, as a kid, uh, video games was a shared interest with a lot of you know kids that I was going to school with. Um, I, uh, as a child, especially in like the early years of like uh, elementary school and middle school, I was bouncing around schools a lot uh, because of you know parents moving uh, schools and everything. Uh, and so video games were both kind of like, uh, that shared connection that I could use to kind of, you know, break the ice and be like, Hey, do you want to come over and play Mario party? Um, I know we just got to know each other, but like, let me steal your stars. Uh, or, you know, <laughs> it was something that I could do when, uh, when there wasn't a whole lot of friends around. Um, and, uh, and I could, you know, really dive into a world and, uh, make friends virtually either through online games, uh, or through, you know, single player experiences. Uh, and it stuck with me. Did you prefer single player or online? You know, uh, a little bit of both. Kind of a hard choice there. I, I guess, you know, gun to my head, I'd have to say that uh, online experiences are absolutely the uh, the one I would choose. Um, there's just, there's something magical about being able to go into a persistent world uh, and organically meet other people who are just living a life uh, alongside you. Right. You have no idea who they really are, but, you know. You guys are there for the the, the shared experience. Um, yeah, there's yeah. there's no preconceptions, and uh, it's just all about like getting together and having fun, doing the thing that you both are, 
choosing to do in your free time. Do you ever get into like a clan or something or, or, or guild or, or whatever game you played on, whatever games you played online? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so like one of my first uh, big online games was Final Fantasy XI. Um, and uh, that was... That was back in the days of the early aughts, uh, and uh, that game was intentionally built uh, around you could get up to like level 13 out of 75 by just doing whatever you want solo. Um, and then you had to form relationships. You had to find groups. You had to uh, go into the, the higher level zones that were absolutely deadly if you were going to try and tackle them solo. Um, and then you'd sit in like these camps that the community would uh, would figure out where the best places to set up are. Um, and you would just uh, find other people who are like-minded, who are like, hey, I'm here because I want to get into a group and do this content. Uh, and you would go out and you do that. And in that game, they had uh, link shells, uh, which was their equivalent of guilds. Mm. Um, and you could join any number of link shells. Uh, and so I, I joined quite a few of those. I was pretty young. I was like, 11 to 15 whenever I was playing that game. So uh, I wasn't the most social butterfly, mm -hmm. um, nor did I have many like applicable opinions on the politics that people were talking about in those games. Uh, but uh, I moved on from that to like World of Warcraft and joined a, a couple of uh, pretty intimately uh, connected guilds with like lots of friends that had known each other in real life. Uh, we got together, we raided, uh, I was in some like really hardcore, got to get to the top of like our server kind of raid guilds. Uh, communities are super fun to, to integrate with and be around. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I, I kind of around the similar age, like what was it? Star Wars Battlefront two on PS2. Yeah. Dude, I got into, I got into a clan on that. I was in it for like two years. That was like all we did. It was like every day. We're, we're playing or we're either playing other clans or we're practicing uh it was like one summer in particular i think it was summer of of oh five it was just non-stop uh yeah those are some of the most fun i've ever had playing playing games so can totally relate to that big time yeah it offers a space that you can just you know get together regardless of where you're at in your life regardless of where you live you know, you can set just a time where everybody just sits down and pops on a headset and either gets on their computer or, you know, gets on their console and just hang out and have fun together, play yeah. video games. Did you ever get to, magic. like, know people more than the game at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was uh, the cool part. I made, yeah. I made some lasting friendships. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I had, I had people that I, you know, considered, like, my best friends, uh, people that i would say you know if i get married like they're gonna be at my wedding cool. you know Love uh that. i've i've met people that uh that i know did get married uh by the relationships that they found in in these video games uh and it's just it's incredible you know it's a it's a link socially that i think uh is still fairly new but is now like pretty heavily integrated into our culture it's pretty great yeah i think it's being accepted more and i think along with dating apps like i got friends that are getting married and uh not this weekend but the next week and they met on tinder um i know a bunch of people who have gotten together over tinder or dating apps or games or whatever i mean it's really uh incredible how the internet is is bringing us closer together i think as a society even though i think also a lot of people would think it's driving us away but i think it's just we're, we're finding different ways to connect than we did before uh, the internet or when the internet was in its you know early days it's like uh being part of a fandom you know uh mm -hmm. you, you just 
share your love for a particular thing and uh, you can talk you know at hours on end around that and hopefully that bleeds into like so so who are you right you know what do you do what uh what part of the world do you live in what's the life experience that you have uh and you can really you can really dive into getting to know people and i i feel like having that shared interest uh, to kind of, like I said before, to kind of break the ice makes it a lot uh, more likely for people who, you know, are playing a video game together to feel comfortable opening up to each other uh, about, you know, the more personal parts of their life, the the things that are outside the video game. Um, yeah, and it gets rid of the need for small talk, which I love because I I hate yeah. small talk so um <laughs> it's, it's great to be like all right we all like this game so we can clearly talk about that and then that's going to make me more comfortable to maybe talk about other stuff so me too uh i uh my my dad and uh some of my family that's of the older generation uh, anytime i talk to them it's like struggling really hard to find anything like common <laughs> interest to talk about uh and uh, i've been slowly but surely like getting them into you know some of the pieces of media that i like you know now we have tv shows that we can talk about we've got movies we can talk about i'm hoping to one day break that barrier with a video game yeah that must be well that, that's good that that's happening but i bet initially when they're like well what do you you know if they, they don't know what you do in, in depth it's like i'm sure that was kind of uncomfortable right a little bit to be like you know, I, I design, I design in Guild Wars too. It's like, what the hell are you, did you even say? Yeah. Oh, uh, funny. Uh, you know, talking about like how, when, when in my life did I feel, uh, that I wanted to get into games? Uh, like I knew from a really early age, but when I was in my, my late teens, um, I, I made the decision. I'm like, you know what? Uh, this is what I love to do. Uh, this is what I would want to educate myself on how to actually perform this craft and make this art. Um, and so I'm going to leave town, leave Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, and go across the United States. Uh, and I'm going to go to a, a city where, you know, video game uh, industry actually exists. Uh, and my, my whole family just kind of looked at me like I was just, you know, bonkers. Uh, no one really believed in the value of doing that. That was always like a, it's kind of like saying, I'm going to go to Hollywood and be an actor, right? Like you can totally, you should, if that's your dream, 100% do it. It is cutthroat. It is going to be very difficult. There's going to be a lot of obstacles and a lot of people who are very far removed from that culture. See that as kind of like an unattainable, impossible, you know, thing to do. Uh, and that's how they treated this. Uh, so, Hey, proved them wrong right <laughs> yeah absolutely so before you before you made the move though just to delve deeper into your 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 childhood i guess a little bit um if if games was sort of you know made it easier for you to make friends whether it was online or, or with people that you know were in wherever you were living at the time um what was school like then if that was kind of like your your outlet was was school tough uh, or, or did you get along at school well with, with, with studying or was it like, man, this is just not, not my bag. Yeah. Uh, it's, so that's a multifaceted subject. Uh, I'll try and navigate this as, as clearly as I can. Um, so f- first things first, my, my dad is actually, um, a teacher and, uh, he taught middle school, uh, middle school science and middle school physical education. And so, uh, like all the way up from elementary school to uh, middle school, like he really helped me to um, to really be hungry for knowledge, be hungry for ed- education, um, and to even on the subjects that I didn't like, like math, 
um, which I love now, and I'll get into that later. But uh, even on the things that I wasn't super excited about, to really try and push me to uh, to find the value of just learning and and getting that knowledge, and then maybe one day hopefully applying it. Right, finding a dream before you know all of this stuff really solidified as the the path that I wanted to walk, um, and. Uh, and it was, it was pretty stable uh, up through those grades. Uh, when I got into high school, though, um, some like pretty difficult social things happened, some pretty difficult familial events uh, started to occur, um, and it made it very easy for me to kind of detach and, and to fall into these worlds, uh, like particularly World of Warcraft, um, and to kind of use them as like a comfort zone, uh, as a place to escape uh, and to get out of the, the crazy, you know, bullshit that was going on in the real world. And uh, I... I eventually got to the point where um, I didn't like going to school anymore. Um, again, you know, there were some social issues that were going on. Uh, there were some familial problems that were popping up, and uh, I just I didn't like being around uh, around a bunch of kids that, uh, for better or for worse, were just kind of treating life uh, as though it was just super easy in a game to be played. Uh, and, uh, and then that's not their fault, right? They were kids at the time. So if anybody's watching this, like, I don't hold it against you. We were all like 14, 15. Uh, but I ended up dropping out of school. Uh, and uh, I, I just stopped going. Uh, I kind of dove into uh, video games as kind of like a way to, um, to try and get some form of like social interaction and activity with people that I trusted um, and to... Uh, to just kind of get me through some really dark periods where I was struggling with depression. Uh, I learned later that I had undiagnosed ADHD, which definitely did not help. Um, and the way that a lot of subjects are taught in school uh, just weren't interesting to me. Like, I talk about math, right? Uh, math was one of those things that just, like, I kept balking at anytime the teachers were, you know, presenting like, all right, now it's time to learn trigonometry and time to learn, you know, like advanced algebra and stuff like that. Once we hit geometry, I was like, get the hell out of here. I'm done. Like, I can't do this. <laughs> what the hell does this even mean? And, you know, I, I honestly think a lot of it is because it's presented as like, here's a bunch of numbers and problems to solve without actual real world applications uh, presented as to how you could use the skill set. Turns out, Math is awesome, and you can do some incredible art with it, uh, and uh, you can uh, create some incredible video game content with it. And if it was just presented in some ways that was like, hey, here's some of the things that you have an interest in that if you learn this thing will help you, um, I totally would have attached to it more. Yeah, I think that's one of the problems with school, at least when we were in, in school, is, is like the lack of real-world application to things like math. Um, Hell, even sometimes things like like history, like relating maybe historical events to what we're going through now would be interesting. But it's like it's always presented in this very kind of like black and white. This is what it is. Forget about anything else. Don't think about anything else. It doesn't like open it up for you to think about anything else. And also just like especially, you know, you're talking about the ADHD. I don't know if I have ADD or ADHD, but my dad did. I probably have a touch of it or a lot of it. I'm not sure. But it's really hard to concentrate when you got 30 other kids around and not having like sort of more individualized instruction, I think, is also um, was a problem for me. It's tough learning stuff that you just doesn't come naturally uh, at that age. For me, it was like disaster. Yeah. And 
You know, I don't, I don't know if the uh, the part of the world that you grew up in had uh, the same kind of cultural mentality to dropping out. Uh, but uh, back home in Florida, like it was kind of seen as a death sentence, right? Like, ah, uh, Cam- Cameron's a dropout. Cameron's only going to, you know, be working, uh, you know, nine to five jobs at like uh, the local targets or uh, you know gas stations and like really, his future's over. Yeah, that's there's there's yeah. a limit to what he can do. Uh, and it's like, absolutely not. What are you talking about? What was uh, what was your parents' reaction, particularly your dad being an educator? Oh, uh, I I know that he was very very disappointed. Uh, <laughs> he it took a little bit. Uh, it took quite a few years to kind of convince him of the the plan that I was formulating in the background. Because around the time that I had dropped out, uh, like it it started to really spin the wheels in my head of like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Because my goal isn't to like just, you know, drop out and do nothing with my life. Like I still want to do stuff. Uh, and, uh, and I started, you know, coming up with, uh, a plan of action, like what schools am I going to go to? Um, what kind of cities do I might want to be in, uh, in order to, to get into this industry? Um, and, uh, I would talk to him a little bit about it every now and then, and he'd kind of, you know, just take it and be like, eh, we'll see, you know, I really just wish you would get your education. Um, and, uh, I understand totally get it. Uh, if I was talking to a teenager at that point, like I'd have a lot of the same concerns. Um, but, uh, it it took some time. Uh, I think, uh, with a big shift as that, uh, it required kind of showing the proof in the pudding, um, and really just doing, uh, what I said I was going to do, uh, which was very hard. It took a long time, but. So what did you do when you, when you dropped out initially before you could actually you know, you're getting your plan together and everything. What did you do uh, beyond beyond games? Uh, so I I started to dive into um, at, at that point. You know, it was the early 2010s, uh, and I I dived into the the internet in terms of like all of the educational resources that were available at the time. Um, not nearly as many uh, well structured and, and well produced educational resources as we have today. Um, but uh, really just trying to find like anything that I could, um, you know, YouTube videos of people talking about things, critiquing things, uh, and uh, surrounding myself with people who uh, were like-minded uh, and would uh, really like dive into the details of the things that they loved. Um, I was kind of a homebody for a little while. Like I spent, you know, nearly three years just kind of as a hermit in my home, just playing video games and uh, sucked into screens and stuff. And every now and then I'd, you know, get out and like a friend from high school would be like, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. You want to go do a thing? And then we would. Uh, But largely it was just surround myself with as much of the thing that I loved as possible from as many different uh, perspectives as possible uh, and just try and take in all of that information, assess things, uh, practice like writing. At the time I thought, you know, I'm gonna write my own story and you know, maybe I'll, I'll turn that into a video game. Uh, and so just really trying to get as much practice into the craft as possible. Do you try to make a game at all? No. Uh, the, the like indie developer tools uh, that were around at the time, um, I didn't know how to make them available. Uh, I was still learning to be like super technologically savvy. There's a, uh, a small uh, engine that Undertale was developed in. Um, and I think I remember uh, downloading that or like an early version of that, something like that. Very basic, like 2D top-down platformer type of stuff. 
uh, didn't get very far because um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I wanted, uh, well, that's not true. I did know what I wanted to do. I wanted to build like AAA experiences, like big stories with big set pieces and like flashy and exciting combat. And uh, I knew I wanted to do something with online components to it. Um, and so uh, I wish, you know, if I could go back in time and talk to 15 year old me, I'd be like, Download these things, start building super, super simple stuff, uh, get the fundamentals down because you're going to need it. Um, but 15 year old me was like, I'm just going to skip right to the good part. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, when you're at that age, it's kind of like, you know where you want to end, but you don't know where to start. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I will say Minecraft was like an incredible outlet for me. Uh, my friends were playing it and, uh, and they were like, hey, you're a really creative person. Have you tried playing Minecraft? It's like in beta at the moment that's how long ago this was uh and we jumped in and like i i was able to use that as an outlet for like just creating a bunch of things learning a little bit more of like a mechanical engineer or a technical engineering type of like mindset um it's really good i'm incredibly impressed with uh how far that game has come and how far it was you know even back in the day yeah around that time like minecraft little big planet all this sort of user generated content you know, I think that was incredibly useful to people that wanted to get in the industry. It was you weren't building things in a traditional way, but you were you were building things and you were you were stretching those creative muscles. Yeah, it was simplified, but it was very much just like, do you have an idea of how you might be able to like create something with these parameters? Uh, Little Big Planet is a great example. I wish that I had a PlayStation console uh, whenever I was that that age. I didn't get that until I actually moved out uh, and spent a year in Ohio. Um, but then I, I got into a little big planet and that was a lot of fun. All right. So you get your plan together, I assume. And you, you make that announcement. I'm going, I'm getting the hell out of Jacksonville. What, what's your plan? Where are you going? Uh, that story, uh, has some interesting beginnings. Um, so it was in 2012. Uh, I was 19 and, uh, Guild Wars two had just come out. Um, and I had been a big player of Guild Wars one. Uh, I jumped into the game uh, as a kid in middle school and uh, played through all the campaigns and met some good friends through there. Um, and and uh, when the studio uh, announced GW2 and they released a lot of their marketing uh, videos for it and they released the manifesto talking about, like, here's how we're changing the, uh, the world of MMOs. Uh, here's how we're approaching content. Here's how we're approaching combat. Uh, all of that just like really spoke to me and excited uh, me to, to really jump into this new age of online gaming. And uh, so I did. Uh, and serendipitously, I met uh, someone uh, who uh, I felt really strongly for. Uh, they felt strongly for me. And she was living up in Ohio at the time. Uh, and so I was, was like, well, I have nothing here in Florida. I'll move up there. Uh, and uh, we'll see if this thing works. And so uh, we did. Uh, I spent a year there, uh, and it was it was good. It was a, I was able to break out of my like social shell that had built up over the last few years of kind of being isolated. Uh, got a job uh, and was able to make some friends and spend a lot more time like uh, really connecting with people physically um, rather than just digitally. Uh, but at the same time, like we would, you know, go back home and we'd play video games. We played Guild Wars 2 and we'd play uh, eventually like Final Fantasy 14 came out um, and, uh, and it was a good time. But uh, but Ohio is Ohio. 
and uh, there's not a whole lot of video game industry out there. Um, so about nine months into living uh, in Ohio, I, I was like, you know what, I, I don't want to waste any time. I don't really see a future here for me. Uh, let's move out to the West Coast. Let's go to Seattle because, you know, I want to get into the video game industry and like, man, I would love to work for ArenaNet uh, on Guild Wars 2 one day. Uh, and uh, that's where they're at. So what better way to you know have the chance and the opportunity than to put myself in the city where I'll have the chance and the opportunity. Uh, so we did, packed up and made like a 45 hour road trip and stopped in Salt Lake City for a little bit. It was a lot of fun. I had packed a, uh, like a 2003 Camry uh, up, to, up to the ceiling. It was absolutely not legal to drive that thing across the United States. Uh, you take care of those Japanese-made vehicles. They'll take care of you. Yeah. Like, the only cars I've owned are Hondas or Toyotas. They are fantastic. We are not associated in any way with Hondas or Toyotas, but <laughs> for the record, they're awesome. <laughs> I agree, honestly. Uh, Toyota's been great. Um, but yeah, uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful journey, um, and it, it led me to kind of just settling down in the kind of the outskirts of the greater Seattle area, because uh, for those who don't know, it's it's there's Seattle, and then there's a bunch of other cities around the area, um, and uh, we were in kind of one of the southern cities called Kent, um, and I got a job at Target, uh, and was just kind of like, all right, I'm here, uh, I'm gonna save up as much as I can, and there's a school, Digipen, uh, in the area that you know I'll apply once I have enough funding to be able to you know, get in. And, uh, that was my new plan. Yeah. That's really cool in terms of, it's like your own American odyssey in a way going to Ohio and then going to Seattle and all the things you experienced there. I, I mean, from what I could tell, it sounds like that Ohio experience was really instrumental in you sort of getting remotivated in a way, even though it sounded like you still stayed motivated, but, um, being more social, being in a relationship, going about, um, you know, getting a job, getting back out in the world a little bit, having a little more balance, it sounds like, was was really good. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I was a hermit, <laughs> 100%. Uh, and, uh, and this really gave me the opportunity to just kind of um, come out of the chrysalis and, and really start to find who I am as an individual, uh, especially being able to interact with people face-to-face -face and, and form a lot of really close bonds uh, with people. Um, it was, like you said, it was instrumental uh, for me being able to take the next step. So I feel like at that age too, like when you say 19, like from like 19 to 23 or so, I feel like that's the time when you really start to figure out what the hell you're going to do or what you're going to try and do. You're going to take your chances. You're going to take your shots. Uh, it's a perfect age to do it. You're like old enough to know enough, but you still don't know shit kind of thing. But you're at a particular point in your life where you can actually go try and make something happen. It's not like a dream anymore. It's like, all right, let's go find the dream. Yeah, 100%. There's a lot of unknowns. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, but yeah, it's it's very free form. It's very much just like, let's, let's really define who I am and what I want to do. Uh, I don't think that necessarily stops being a possibility, uh, you know, at any particular no, age. No, not at all. But it's definitely... But you get older, Yeah. right? more responsibilities, other things come into your life. Um, but yeah, there, there's always a point to go adventuring and do something new and, and all that. But I think like the first time you do it is the sweetest. Yeah, I, I would agree. I'll never forget that journey. 
It was a lot of fun. And you really went across the damn country, too. That wasn't like a, a, a hop and skip over to Seattle. That was like the trek of a lifetime. I got as far away from Jacksonville as I could on the continental <laughs> U.S. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. A lot of distance between those two cities. Um, yeah. So you mentioned DigiPen. That's that a school that you wanted to apply to? Yeah, uh, I had known about it, um, and uh, I didn't really, I didn't really have any connections at the time. Uh, so I figured, I'll just work. Uh, I'll put away some money in savings every month, uh, and I'll save up for a tuition to be able to get in and to, um, to really, you know, start to learn from uh, from professionals uh, and put myself into a position where I can start maybe growing those skill sets and then become a good, attractive candidate for uh, a local you know, Seattle area, uh, studio. Was there any apprehension on the school's part because of the high school situation or that not, did that not matter? Uh, I actually never ended up going to, uh, talk to the DigiPen folks. Um, that was something that I was planning to do, uh, I think around six to eight months after moving out, uh, is whenever I had mapped out that like, that's how much I would need in order to really solidify, put down roots and then take that next step. Um, but before any of that happened, uh, I had uh, the most serendipitous interaction of them all uh, in that I was working at Target uh, in the electronics section shortly after the PlayStation 4 launch, and uh, the president of ArenaNet, uh, Mike O'Brien, uh, came walking down the aisle uh, towards the electronics section, and I saw him, uh, recognized him immediately, uh, and like my whole body just went whoosh, like time, time freezes. You got all of these thoughts running through your head. Like, how are you going to do this? You're starstruck. Like, is this the opportunity? Do you want to, do you want to make this the moment that you go up to your idol and like talk to him about like, Hey, I want to work for your company. Uh, and I did, uh, I had turned over to my, uh, my colleague who was, uh, on the other register and I was just like, Hey. I will explain this later. I need you to hold down the fort. Uh, I got to go talk to somebody. And they were like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I will I will tell you later. And I just went off, right? <laughs> uh, and it was it was great. Uh, I kind of bumbled over my words a lot. Uh, and I, I just went up to him and said, like, are you Mike O'Brien? Because <laughs> uh, I know, I think I know who you are. And I'm a huge fan. And that got us uh, to talking a little bit about uh, my experience with the game and his company and the uh, the beautiful artwork that is the, the Guild Wars franchise. Um, and that uh, led to uh, one of my first interactions with him being uh, me having to disappoint him because uh, the PlayStation 4 having just come out, he was looking for a controller uh, so that his kids could play uh, Trine together on the PlayStation. And we didn't have any. Uh, and I tried my best. I, I like went into the back room. I was like shuffling through all of the different, uh, the different shelves, like trying to find, you know, ah, did someone like accidentally misstock one? Is it maybe over here in the section? No, the store didn't have any. The console had just come out. There were no controllers. And so I had to break the news to him that like, sorry, sorry, Mo, your kids cannot play co-op together tonight. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but then afterwards, uh, he invited me to uh, to come to the studio for a studio tour, uh, and it was kind of an open invitation. Um, there wasn't a specific time that he had given. You know, he's just like, "Hey, when you get there, just let them know that you're there to see me." Um, 
and uh, it was like a dream come true. Uh, I it's still kind of surreal talking about it today. Nearly what nine years later at this point. Jeez, yeah, that was November of 2023. So we were we're almost nine years ago now. Uh, I got to go to the studio and I did the uh, the full studio tour. It was absolutely hilarious to me walking up to the front desk and being like. I'm here to see Mike O'Brien, the president of the studio. <laughs> and uh, and the woman behind the counter was just like, I'm going to make sure your story checks out. And made a f- couple of phone calls, went into the, the studio. <laughs> Where'd you guys meet? At Target? Where do you work? At Target. You know, it's like, really? Okay. <laughs> and you're here to see him. Got yeah. it. I can I can just imagine you know the thoughts going through her head at the time just like you know is this some crazed super fan that's gonna like have have some sort of needle to get some of his blood and like take it and sell it on the black market like what kind of crazy things might happen uh, and it was incredible uh, to see uh, she comes back and uh, Mike and a bunch of other uh, of the studio leadership at the time kind of came out with him. Uh, they were in a big meeting about something. Uh, I don't even remember what it was at this point. They didn't tell me because I wasn't under NDA at the uh, point in time. And uh, yeah, I got a picture with them. And then the, uh, the recruiting lead for the studio uh, gave me the tour. And afterwards, I was like, how do I do something to get my foot in the door here what do i what do i do because uh, i'm just just a kid from you know the south and i have dreams and aspirations of doing this thing and i've got a small plan that i don't know if it's going to work and i might as well get your advice as someone who is the lead of getting people into the studio what do i need to do uh and that led to uh him giving me his card and saying like send me an email every week even if i don't respond i promise you're not pestering me just send an email every single week and i will reach out to you when something happens and something opens up uh and it took a few months of doing that and there were times where i was like this guy hates me this guy thinks that i'm just like the most annoying person on the planet he gets in on monday morning he sees my email and he immediately sends it to his junk uh no, nicest guy ever. Uh, genuinely meant what he said, and eventually a position opened up, and boom. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's beyond serendipitous. It's kind of unbelievable because you're like, I'm moving to Seattle to go work or to hopefully one day work for ArenaNet. You just happen to see the head of the studio. You happen, and then you, 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 the thing that really amazes me is that everyone was so nice there. Yeah, <laughs> head of the studio, super nice. Recruiting guy, super nice. Um, that you know. That, that says a lot about the, the culture there. Yes. Uh, that, was, that was one of the things that, like, I, I felt in the videos and then the, uh, the interviews that I watched of that team uh, and what really initially drew me to wanting to work there was, like, this feels like the kind of culture that I want to be a part of. Because um, I could have stayed in Florida and worked for, like, Tiburon, uh, and, uh, sure. you know, done. Yeah. The Madden developer, right? Yeah, exactly. you know, I could make football games, but, uh, I don't know if that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to make some, you know, massive online fantasy games. And here's a company that's doing it, a team that's doing that, that, that really seems to 
uh, value um, personal health and and uh, and relationships with each other and uh, like forming a feeling of true familial bond, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, it was it was prevalent. They they were incredibly welcoming. Um, it was just wonderful. Yeah, sounds like it. what was what was the position they offered? So uh, it was the uh, the entry level for QA. Um, so at the time, uh, QA was being uh, moved to happen at a third party uh, QA firm, and so they uh, reached out to me and they were like, "Hey, we're putting together this new QA team. Technically, they don't work for ArenaNet; they work for uh, at the time it was um, uh, Mobius. And uh, but we we think you might be a good fit. You want to come in for an interview? Um, and yeah." That's where I started was uh, being a third-party tester, um, and ArenaNet really treated that group as part of the studio, right? Like you hear so often nowadays about third-party, uh, third-party like testing studios being mistreated and uh, not being included in credits and not not feeling like they're actually part of the team uh, and. ArenaNet made a, a huge effort uh, with Mobius to uh, send representatives from the team over to the Mobius office um, to give uh, some like project updates, to give presentations on our future uh, objectives. When Heart of Thorns, our first expansion, was early in development, uh, Colin Johansson, uh, the, the game director at the time, came and actually presented the whole expansion to the testing group. Um, and was like, hey, this is the thing that we're going to be building. We want your feedback. We want to hear what you have to say. Um, and that's just like, it's kind of unheard of, you know? Uh, and they would spend, uh, not only would they come over for uh, being able to just, you know, talk with us and present to us, but they would stay and they'd have lunch with us. And it was just, it really made us feel like we were not just numbers on a screen to them uh, or faceless names. Uh and uh, and they even went as far as to like take some of their um, some of their early uh, like entry level producers that they were training up. They would have them start by doing a week or two uh, at the the Mobius office um, to get a sense of like, hey, here is what the testing environment feels like. Here is what the culture is like over here. Um, you know, this is your first taste. And then now we're going to pull you in house. And here's you know all of the other things that are going on. Um, so it was a it was a really positive environment. That uh, that feeling of hospitality of uh, of a really welcoming community was pervasive uh, through both how they treated each other in the studio, but also how they treated uh, their third party outsource firms. It was great. Yeah, that is not that's something you don't hear about, honestly, in the industry. That's a that's a and it's a good move. More 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 studios should do that. That have third party testing. I agree. It takes effort. It's hard, but yeah. it's so worth it. It's 100% worth it. Because then I'm sure you were like ready to run through a wall for somebody at that point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so talk about when you actually got in there and, and you know, it's like the first couple weeks. Like, are you kind of overwhelmed by anything or um, are you just doing functional tests? Like, take me through a little bit of your routine then. The, the first big project that I was able to work on was uh, we had a... A uh, big update to the game in 2014 that added a bunch of like big quality of life features. Like we introduced the wardrobe, um, and uh, we also shipped in China around the same time. 
And so uh, I kind of came in on um, on releases that were very much like systems oriented and gameplay feature uh, oriented, kind of changing the way that players really interact with the game on a day to day basis and what kind of um, what kind of goals they were forming and, and rewards that they were chasing after. Uh, and so I was able to uh, take the the knowledge and the expertise I had as a player of the game, uh, which again I was just like super into to GW two as a player before jumping in as a tester, um, and uh, and get into these new developments, uh, see them through the eyes of someone who you know really uh, loves the moment to moment experience and how it might affect that, give feedback on that stuff, um, and then just like poke at it and play it and. Think about like if this was live, what would I do uh, to try and like min-max the system or to, to break these things in certain ways? Um, you know, how would I actually utilize this uh, from my you know day-to-day experience? Um, and there was a lot of training of of learning uh, like the the industry terms, which I this being my first industry job, like I didn't know uh, what the the terms around bug reports were. Um, I didn't know what regression actually meant. Uh, I thought regression at first was like when a bug fails and things get worse because like, you know, you're regressing, right? You're not progressing, you're regressing. It's like, no, it just means that you test it and make sure that it gets better. What about like uh, bug reports where you're like, I had to replicate the bug and all that stuff, like videos, images that that kind of, was that also like a, oh, that's what you need to do. That's how things get fixed. You know that, um, I feel like that part, not to sound smug or anything, but I feel like it came fairly naturally. Uh, the um, the like active map out step by step what you were doing when you encountered this thing, uh, or like find someone else's bug. Maybe you're regressing something that someone else wrote. Maybe they're not in the office that day, or they need help, um, and uh, and just like go through the process of exactly step by step what's going to happen. Um, but then also kind of branch out and halo test and figure out, you know, if I do this, you know, small little thing here, if I alter in this way, um, you know, what happens then? Uh, that all very, very quickly clicked with me. And uh, taking screenshots and attaching them, like we had a pretty sophisticated system at the time for making that very easy. Um, and I'm always, I've been a huge believer in visual aids. Uh, because text can only get you so far, right? The cadence at which you're reading text is different from reader to reader, and the emphasis on different words might be different. Um, you can have the clearest step-by-step repro steps, uh, and it's... Might not matter. Exactly. There's still a possibility that it gets taken out of uh, out of context. At Mudstack now, we've been working with a lot of the developers here for... I, I've worked with some of these guys for like 10 years, and like it really, our process of, of tracking bugs has evolved to the point where it's like, you gotta you gotta write down all the steps. You need an image. You gotta like make circles on the image or squares, or you have a video. Like you have to have a visual aid. If you do not have a visual aid, that shit just gets thrown right out the door. Which is fair to the developers because you know they're doing so much and they, they don't have time to try and interpret something. One of the silliest things that I did uh, early on uh, was <laughs> uh, I was taking uh, pictures of of a couple of bugs that I wanted to be able to upload. Um, and uh, I was trying to figure out how I was going to upload them to uh, a place where they could be easily seen. And this was before I really started to get into like just attaching them straight to the bugs in uh, our bug software at the time. Um, and I, uh, I uploaded these screenshots of in-development bugs to Imager. <laughs> 
And uh, and I was I had done that like a few times uh, until one of my like coworkers uh, looked over and was just like, "Is that amateur?" And I was like, "Yeah, it's a it's a photo hosting website." He's like, it's a public photo hosting website. Are you sure that these pictures should be there? I was like, oh, no, no, no. Uh, and I thought that I was going to get fired, like, leaking, you know, in development content. I thought that that's how leaks actually happened was someone made a mistake. And, you know, some some eagle-eyed person, like, browsing imager is like, oh, what's this? And then sends it out. And that totally can happen, right? But, uh, but man, it was terrifying. Uh, learned very quickly. <laughs> how long were you testing before... You started designing stuff. So uh, I was in the third-party QA team for about a year, uh, and then I got brought on in-house uh, to run the um, the raids uh, team uh, from a QA perspective. Uh, and I did that for about, I'd say, about a year and a few months, uh, maybe a year and a half. And then I want to say it was August of 2015, uh, is when uh, the position opened up. I applied and I got the offer for coming on full time as design. Um, before that actually happened, um, it was around the uh, the beginning of 2015 that I started to really dive into trying to learn the development tools on my own because um, I knew I wanted to get into design. I knew that was my ultimate goal, uh, and I wanted to be able to have um, an easy entry uh, into uh, the, the world of actually designing uh, for the game, which meant I needed to be able to hit the ground running knowing the development tools. And luckily, um, I had a, a couple of great mentors that uh, really taught me uh, how to think really efficiently, how to um, reverse engineer things that had already been built, um, and discover how they were built, uh, and then maybe apply those learnings to something that I'm building. And uh, so Nate Johnson and Benjamin Arnold, uh, shout out to them. Uh, they really helped to guide me in terms of the, the philosophy of, of learning these tools. And um, they were very patient and, and really, uh, they spent a lot of their free time uh, helping to educate me uh, in these tool sets so that I could build uh, a representation of what I might do in the game. Uh, and uh, funnily mm -hmm. enough, that that representation uh, ended up taking form uh, as a, uh, a piece of dungeon content for the game that uh, when I was brought on to design, uh, the team was like, this is good. We're going to green light this to actually go through the full production process and ship. So... You know, be ready to ship this pretty soon because it's pretty far along and we're going to finish it. And I was like, oh, okay. I guess that paid off then. <laughs> so how did you strike up that relationship with those mentors? So uh, so for Nate, um, it was just uh, very much about like going to some social gatherings where we had mutual friends, um, getting to know him by uh, being introduced to him like on uh, in the office by... Uh, some of the people that uh, were my leads, um, just kind of introducing me to various people amongst the, the team. Um, we hit it off really well. We played Bloodborne together all the way through. Uh, oh, dude, Bloodborne. Yeah, I don't think I would have completed that game solo, but man, I had a blast. No, you have to have help. At least I did. <laughs> that was my pandemic game, like 2020. I'd, I'd had Bloodborne for like four years. I just hadn't played it. And then I was like, you know what? I got nothing to do right now. What a game. Sorry. <laughs> Anytime someone mentions Bloodborne, I'm like, Yes. You played that with uh, with another player co-op? Yeah, not the whole thing. I, I did play a, a decent amount of it solo, but I got to the point, especially with the DLC, I was like, I got to find some 
some people to play this with and i and i did and it was whew, that was an experience those from software games are just brutal they forge your relationships and fire yeah I just beat Sekiro. Ah, uh, Sekiro. Yes. Love Sekiro. And that's that's all by yourself. That was one of the hardest games I've ever played. Um, I beat the last boss and almost cried. I think I <laughs> died to him probably 150 times. That's not an exaggeration. Yeah, yeah. I could I could gush about Sekiro. Uh, what a wonderful game. But yeah, uh, we, uh, we uh, Nate and I formed a really good bond uh, over Bloodborne. Um, and, uh, and then... I was able to, you know, feel comfortable reaching out to him and be like, hey, I have aspirations of doing this thing and I want your advice and, and your guidance and uh, mentorship. And then for uh, Ben Arnold, uh, he was a, um, an engineer that uh, I had a, a mutual friend at the studio um, named Victoria House, uh, who I remember one day we were just talking in uh, the common area around lunchtime. And uh, she pulled me over and she's like, hey, I have someone that I want you to meet. Uh, and uh, we walked over and sat down on some comfy chairs and was like, this is Ben Arnold. Ben Arnold's a new engineer to the, uh, the GW2 team. Um, and I feel like y'all will hit it off really well. Talk to each other about the games that you like. Boom, go. And it was just an immediate connection. Like uh, Ben's one of my closest friends. Uh, anytime that we're together and we're talking, we're on the same wavelength and we just uh, we can go for hours uh, just you know talk and shop and thinking about like how do we push games further and what are some of the cool things that we can do with the uh the tool set and uh ben was ben was the kind of engineer that he didn't let limitations stop him from dreaming really big um and so we for that first project that we uh, ended up shipping uh he we had a lot of inspiration from near automata um, and from Fury, which was coming out around the same time, uh, to take kind of bullet hell uh, style mechanics and translate them into a 3D action game. Um, but then the, the extra challenge on top of that being this is an online game. <laughs> and so uh, you, you have to worry about like the difference in server pings and how do you make sure that the information that's on the server and the client are the same because uh, they can get desynced. And that's why in online games, like in, it can feel like a projectile shouldn't have hit you, but you did see it explode. Like maybe you dodged it, but it was like, nope. Technically, the, the server thought that you got hit. Uh, so yeah, he had... Uh, but he was the kind of person that was uh, very hungry to solve those problems. Uh, and so he instilled in me a lot of the same values of just like, don't don't ever give up at the first sign of resistance uh, because there's always another way around. And sometimes it just takes some creative thinking. That's great. You found those guys. And the, the fact that, you know, there's a lot of people that get into the industry and they kind of isolate a little bit. You know, even if they're like in QA, maybe they just only talk to the QA people. They don't like reach out as, I don't know if you've noticed this, but something I saw was like, they don't reach out to like the departments they want to go to. Um, and they sort of just keep their head down, do their work, but they're not like socializing as much. And for you to, you know, for you to be able to advance, I think in your career, you got to be able to, to talk to people and get to know them. And uh, not that you don't give a shit if you go about it in the opposite way, but it's like, they don't know what you are thinking unless you go talk to them. Yeah, I was, uh, I was having a conversation about this with one of my colleagues, uh, I think last week, where um, you know, I think uh, communication, especially as we're all working from home now, or you know, a lot of us are, 
um, is even more important to try and reach out and connect with your colleagues and to understand uh, what they're thinking and what kind of product that they're looking to make, right? Because we're, by making video games, like a lot of us are artists, uh, you know, even if we're engineers or designers or in QA, like we're looking to make something that uh, elicits an emotion in the viewer um, and in the player. And uh, if you can reach out to individuals and um, and understand what kind of emotion they're trying to establish, what kind of art they're trying to create and experience they're trying to develop. Um, it just, it makes it a lot easier to get aligned on like, here's the thing that we're actually moving towards. Um, and, uh, and here's an idea that maybe I have for my expertise that might guide you in the direction that you want. Um, and uh, maybe you have something that from your expertise and your experience, you can come to me and say, you know, you think that this might work, but here are some pitfalls that you might be able to, you know, navigate by doing X, Y, and Z. Um, it's so important to communicate with people and to, to reach outside of your area of expertise uh, to get those extra perspectives, um, not just from a social standpoint uh, to, you know, you know, broaden your uh, friendships and relationships, but also um, just from a craft standpoint, you're just going to learn so much more. Uh, if you didn't want to do that, you could be a solo indie developer, but uh, even even indie developers, like they still need to be able to communicate with a team. And I'd argue that that's probably more important for them with a smaller team. Yeah, because there's so much weight on their shoulders. Uh, we had this really cool husband and wife team are making a game by themselves. I think they hired a, a narrative designer since we talked to them, but they're making their own game on their, you know, the guy's handling the, uh, all the art and she's handling the programming. And it's just, it was fascinating watching that dynamic. Cause like there's so much on their shoulders to try and make this game. And uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I would agree that they would need to have even better communication, even though it's a smaller team just cause they're working on so much. So, yeah, there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Cameron, let's talk about your work on the Nightmare Fractal Dungeon. The, the thing that I was doing before I decided to uh, really put in a lot of effort into the Nightmare Fractal was um, I had an indie game that I was working on in the background that I had a few friends that I had met through various means that um, that were talented in a variety of different ways. Uh, and we came together and we had this idea for a game. And so I was learning Unity at the time uh, and trying to, to build uh, a, a little indie project in Unity in my spare time. And uh, I did that for a few months. Um, and I used that as kind of like a first, a first stab at like, let me see what I can do as a designer, right? Um, and there were times where I would bring in my, uh, my project that I'd been working on into the office and be like, hey, you know, at lunch, um, I'm going to open up my laptop. You know, here's a game that I've been working on. Can you play this and, and give me uh, kind of your initial thoughts on what this might, is, might be from a quality standpoint? Um, you know, what are some ways that I can improve? Like, please, I'm hungry for information. And uh, there was a moment where uh, I... I was thinking about it, and I, I can't remember exactly who I was talking to at the time, but uh, something uh, that was said clicked with me. It was like, hey, if you're going to spend like 15, 20 hours a week trying to learn Unity to make a side project so that you can prove to this team that you can be a designer, why don't you just use the development tools 
to do something in that same time in the game that you're going to be working on. And it doesn't have to ship. You can make something that can just, you know, go into the ether. But if you build it in such a way that it could ship, then, you know, you might, you might be better served spending your time doing that. And again, living like five minutes away, that was an easy choice for me to make. It was like, do I sit in my uh, bedroom on my computer and like, you know, learn Unity, which may not be applicable because uh, we use proprietary software? Or do I go into the office and like actually learn the tools that I would be doing on the job? Um, and so it was a bit of, you know, trading something that I would have been doing. And uh, if, I, if I were to tell people that I was doing, you know, an indie project in Unity in my spare time, um, it probably wouldn't make people think that I was crunching as much as if I told them, like, I'm staying in the office building something in my free time with the development tools. And I think there's something interesting there, right? Uh, crunch is, is uh, less of an action and more of a state of mind, right? Uh, at least that's, that's kind of how I feel about it. I think that's really, really interesting. Because, yeah, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I never thought about it like that, but you're exactly right. Because once you get into that mindset, it's hard to it's hard to get out of it. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't a necessity, right? I wasn't wasn't burning myself out or anything. Uh, it was tough. I was putting in a lot of energy, but I loved doing it. How tough was it learning the tools? Did he ever get discouraged, or you're like, oh god, I'm so in over my head. What am I doing? I'm never gonna finish this. Or was it like, no, I'm just gonna, I'm getting this. This this is my jam. Uh, how was how was it? No, it was, it was so tough. Uh, yeah, yeah, there was, I, I was having to turn my brain uh, into like a different, a different setting uh, for a lot of things. Like, you know, I talked about, I didn't like math. Uh, the way, the reason why I love math now is because uh, Ben Arnold and I sat down and he was like, here are the cool things you can do with math. I'm going to show you how to build this cool, cool ability and, uh, and you do so by doing this, 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 and this, and this. And by the way, that was advanced trigonometry. I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay, that's not so bad. Uh, and also the output is like actually interesting to see happen. Um, and that engaged a lot of that curiosity in me and, and got me going uh, on in terms of, you know, learning more advanced stuff. Um, but it was really tough. Uh, and there were, there were also times where like, if I had some free time at work, uh, I would um, start to, especially towards the tail end uh, of my time as QA before I got into design, um, it was kind of a little bit of a quiet period. So I'd spend some time jumping into uh, the engine and, uh, and seeing the, the kind of scripts that, uh, that our other designers were making, seeing some of the content that they were building, um, and uh, then trying to figure out how it worked, right? Reverse engineering it, going through and being like, okay, this piece connects to this piece, connects to this piece, and this does this, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and there was one moment where uh, I reached out to somebody, and I was like, hey, I'm trying to understand how this system that you built works. Um, I know it works. I'm, I'm not coming to you and saying there's a bug, um, but, uh, but I also don't know how it's actually doing what it's doing, which makes me think that it might actually be broken, but working on the front end. Um, and uh, they, 
that was a that was kind of a coarse interaction because uh, they weren't used to uh, QA uh, going into the actual scripts and like uh, it kind of felt to them like I was auditing them. Um, rather, right. They took it personally. Right. Right. Uh, which I totally understand why it happened. And in fact, the, that person and I are are really good friends now. Um, and they were one of. I thought you were about to say you're really you're really big rivals now, really big enemies. No, no, they. Uh, <laughs> there, there definitely was a period of time where, like, I definitely felt some rivalry with that person, uh, but, uh, but no, we, we, uh, we became good friends, and they became a really uh, powerful mentor for me. Um, so yeah, so it was, it was difficult. There was a lot of challenges. There were a lot of times where I felt like I, I'm way over my head. I'm not going to be able to do this. Like, I should have gone to school was uh, a thing that I would tell myself so many times. Um, but I had, I had good friends that pushed me and continued to, uh, to lift me up and, and encourage me to continue going. That's great. Yeah. That and, you know, learn by doing, um, it's kind of like experience is the best teacher. The more you, more you do it, the better you're going to get with it. If you stick with it. Um, so take me through like your design style. Are you writing a bunch of stuff out and then going into the tools? Or are you just like messing around with the tools? Do you have like a, a plan or or how do you how do you work how would you work well actually the real question should be how did you work then versus now uh, that's a good question uh so uh i i start with kind of vision setting uh what is the what is the thing uh from a very high level kind of visual standpoint kind of ideating on the um the the trailer of the thing that you're thinking about right uh and uh so you know, I want I want players to fight uh, a dragon that uh, is like three times the size of the Empire State Building, um, and how are they actually going to do that? Because many games like they'll have big dragons, and you know you'll be fighting their toenails. Um, how do I build something that really feels like you know uh, an encounter with a beast that is that gargantuan in scale, but you're actually engaging with them, right? Uh, think about that, visualize that, uh, and uh, think about it as if um, the the video game already existed, right? What's the end product that you're going after? What's the maybe the mechanics that you can think of, uh, or the way that the character animates and and the VFX like come to life and bring this uh, this whole idea in your head kind of together? Um, and then from there, uh, it's about taking each of those individual components and being like, okay, well. I know I'm going to need this asset and this asset and uh, maybe these animations and these effects, this model, and uh, and then that's what I might need for my support teams. Uh, so I'm going to take that and I'm going to kind of put that aside and then I'm going to go into, all right, like how do I actually build this in the engine? Um, you know, what are some th- some tools that I can use to get the, the kind of behavior that I'm imagining in my head um, and prototype this out? and uh, really push the boundaries of maybe what some of these tools were uh, intentionally uh, built for um, and say, well, it does do this thing. And if I tweak it a little bit, it can do this thing in this different way. Uh, And that's pretty much close enough to what I need. Uh, Do that, experiment around a bunch um, and uh, and just kind of like find uh, ways of being able to develop a very early, very dirty version of the experience. And then from there, uh, use that as like 
a presentation, right? Go to the rest of the team and be like, hey, I have this idea. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this idea and tell you what the vision that I have in my head is of what we could do. Um, here's what I think we might need for it. And here is a representation that I've built with like just myself going in and doing this to really try and get the value of this out so you have a visual aid to show you, you know, like, here's what I'm thinking of, right? Get people kind of aligned on a central vision, um, but make sure that it's kind of blurry enough that people can inject their own ideas and thoughts and, uh, and their vision into it to kind of create, you know, a, a collaborative effort there. Uh, and then you just, you go through uh, the process of like getting in, iterating on something very quickly, seeing what you can do to, um, to get that feeling just a little bit more, uh, more potent, um, get people to come in as often as you can to, to play test the content uh, or play the system that you're developing and tell you how they're feeling. One big thing that I learned uh, that I didn't do a whole lot early um, that I am trying to do a lot more now is when you get people to play your content, to look at your content, tell them nothing, right? Just let them go. Let them do what they need to do. Build in, like, if you're going to be prototyping a new system, build in, like, little signs that tell players, you know, like, hey, press this button to act like you're going to do this thing, and then let them play organically through the experience that you've crafted. Uh, because you're going to get the most raw and uh, and important feedback out of a blind playthrough, right? And you only get to do that once. That was something I I learned when we were uh, went to SCAD for for game design, and that was one of the things we learned when we really started playtesting our senior project. Uh, not to even compare it to what you guys do, but it was like we get up there and start explaining things to people, and it was like a co-op local co-op game, and we start explaining it and then they're trying to listen to us and play it at the same time. And it was just a disaster. And it was like, you know, you know what? We should just shut up. Cause if like, it's not clear from the game design, then we screwed up and we got to go fix that. But the only way we're really going to know is if, you know, we just watch the players. That's, that's the best advice I think you can give any, any budding designer. Just, just be, make your stuff. And when it's play test time, just be quiet, take notes, ask questions at the end, but don't say anything. And it's, it's one of those things that when you think about it, it's like it's fairly obvious, right? When you play a video game, the, the person who made the video game is not there to tell exactly. you anything, right? Yeah, uh, but you're so worried about them, like, getting what you did. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, you know it's like, I have to explain this or they're not going to get it. And then it's like, well, if you have to explain it, it's like a, it's like a bad joke. Yeah. If you have to explain the joke, the joke kind of sucks. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's, you know, a lot of people, uh, like to say that, you know, if you're going to be getting other designers to play test your thing, then it's okay to talk through it. And I actually disagree. Like it's, it is okay. Uh, when you're talking about it from like a paper design perspective, if you want to be like, here is the emotion that I'm trying to elicit. Here's the experience I'm trying to, uh, to get out of the player. Here's the reasoning behind decision A, B, C, D, and E. That's fine. But when it comes to playtesting the actual in-game experience, um, let them go free. Uh, and try to, uh, try to create a, uh, a space for them to speak to you or to give, them, uh, to give you their questions so that you know what's on their mind. You know where uh, information needs to be shored up, uh, where the experience needs to be you know, smoothened out a little bit. Um, 
but it doesn't interfere with the moment-to-moment gameplay uh, because the people on the couch playing your game, the people at the computer playing your game, it's going to be seamless. And if anything stops yeah. them from enjoying it to the fullest, then that's it, <laughs> right? That's where they balk. Right. Yeah. What about collaboration with, with level design? Do you do any of the level design, or is, is there another team for that? Uh, so ReInternet is interesting. Um, we've got... Uh, We've got map artists um, who do a lot of level design um, as part of their job, but they also are in charge of you know, making it all very pretty and, and putting the environment together from an aesthetic standpoint. Um, but then they work together with map designers uh, who are building the content that goes into those maps. Um, and, uh, and so it's kind of a collaborative effort between design and art uh, to really nail down like what the levels feel like. Um, and with it being an online MMO, uh, a lot of it is uh, it comes down to let's uh, let's think about the region that we're in. Let's think about the zones and the aesthetics and the biomes that we're going to be seeing. Um, and then uh, here's like a brief you know overview of like what kind of things players might be able to do in what areas. Um, take a first stab at it, right? Uh, I've been pushing for uh, more gray box level design uh, to happen. Uh, by designers to really show like here's the flow that I'm thinking about Um, here's the pacing of objectives and of dialogue and uh, of the different uh, gameplay moments that might happen Um, and uh, one of the first projects that I uh, that I did uh, that I was able to apply uh, a lot of that gray box mentality to um, was actually the the uh, fight with the big dragon that was you know three times the size of the Empire State Building. Uh, we knew that we were only going to be able to see his head and his neck, um, which was still enormous. Uh, but uh, we were trying to figure out like how do we make a fight uh, with this dragon um, where you only see those assets, and that transitioned into okay, what's going to happen in this big cave? Um, but this cave was made for this purpose, right? Like the, the people that came before, uh, they set this up so that we could use this technology that they have to take down this dragon by luring him in here. Um, and so uh, it needs to feel authentic and it needs to feel um, purposeful. And so uh, I worked together with a map artist at the time, uh, Dan Ebling, to, uh, to figure out like, here's, here's the path that I want players to take. Uh, here are the the story moments that I want to happen. The pacing of those moments. Um, here's a section where, like you know, taking inspiration from games like Uncharted, we want to have a little bit of a chase sequence where like things are coming through the walls and like a bunch of breakables right. are Big happening. Set yeah, but the moment is focused on navigation and nothing else, right? Uh, and so we we went through and we built that out very very early, no details or anything, uh, and then we just kind of gradually expanded on that and we iterated and learned uh what was working what didn't um and that just that was a lot of fun uh so it's it's different uh depending on what kind of content you're developing you know for like an open world map versus like a you know an authored instance experience it's a little bit more linear um but level design is super important and i'd love to see more people engaging with it that's that sounds like a really cool collaborative environment where you know you're really able to work with the the, the artists and and bring the vision to life. When and this, there might not be a right answer to this question, um, but when do you know you got it? Like how many like iterations, play tests? It's like is there something that goes off in your head where like okay we're done, or is it how does that work? 
Ooh, that's tough. Um, yeah. Like I said, it's probably not one right answer for that. Every design decision is different. Everything you're building is different. But um, I'm always interested in that when, when people that do design, because I feel like, you know, you could work on it forever. You could. And, and uh, keep perfecting it, keep tweaking stuff, but eventually you got to let that baby go. Yeah. Uh, you know, the honest answer is uh, I don't think that I've had a moment where I thought, okay, this is good enough. Like, it's, go- it's good to go for my own content. Uh, I'm a perfectionist for my own things. Uh, when I've reviewed other people's content, uh, I've absolutely, like, tried to push myself to be like, okay, this is, this is where your fun is at. Like, these are the things that I'm finding the most engaging. Uh, run with that, you know, this extra fluff that you might have. Um, like, either find a way to recontextualize it to, like, reinforce the experience uh, or uh, just cut it out entirely. Uh, big, big fan of the, uh, the philosophy of design by subtraction, where you just, uh, for an example, you know, Shadow of the Colossus is a game that's entirely built around going after these monolithic creatures, uh, and there's no trash mobs in the game, like, it's just you, your horse, your bow, and your sword. Yeah, no collectibles, really. Yeah, and that's it, and this world, and, and, and yeah, they took away everything that could have detracted from that core experience. Um, and that's what I try to, to really um, get into the mindset of when I'm reviewing other people's content uh, is really just here's what's really fun. Uh, for my own content, I struggle with that, uh, and it's something I'm, I'm working on every day. Um, to be honest with you, it's less of a moment of uh, this is good enough and more of a moment of, like, this is where... I can get it. This is as high of a quality that I think I might be able to do. Um, and, uh, and now it's time to just like back away from changing all of the mechanics anymore from iterating on these things and just polish it. Um, we had a, in 2020, uh, I had a significant life event happen where, um, I lost my mom and, uh, oh, sorry. yeah, me too. Uh, I, I, not to, dwell too much on that but i I dove uh into my work uh for the the remainder of the year um and i was working on uh, a project that uh i was fortunate enough to be able to uh, i had a small team uh at the studio and we were uh kind of using that as a way to process our griefs uh and to uh really uh take the feelings that we had uh from 2020's pandemic starting up and uh, all of the things that were happening in our personal lives and uh, and really infuse it into the experience that we were developing. Um, and it was one of the one of the projects that I felt the strongest about making sure that it was the highest quality. Um, and uh, and that uh, that uh, project that was the Sunqua Peak Fractal Dungeon, um, we pushed all the way up into the very last weeks before it would go live. Uh, tweaking mechanics, tweaking some of the skills that the boss was using, um, changing up some of the details of the environment. Uh, and I tried to do so in a way that was conscious of the fact that I have support teams that are you know, coming in and they're assigning audio values to things. They're uh, making sure the music is lined up. They're making sure that the VFX feel right. Uh, QA is coming in and testing and wanting to make sure that all this stuff works. Um, and, uh, and I was just... 
uh, I was not in a great place. And so I was like, I'm just going to keep going and keep going and keep going um, uh, up to the point of where I think the week before we shipped, uh, I injected an entirely like different mechanic uh, into the final, final phase of the hardest version of the encounter um, to, to like really give it that last bit of oomph uh, that I, I possibly could. And it was super unhealthy and I don't recommend it to anybody. Like it's, you're gonna want to pump up the quality of your, of your project uh, by as much as possible all the way up until the last day. Um, and I ended up, you know, recovering and getting back in there. Uh, but it, it took a lot of mental toll. Um, and so it's, it's really important to be able to practice that discipline of saying, this is good enough, right? Um, if there are others out there that have the skill set of being able to clearly see like when something is uh, is really good, really fun, like you found uh, what's great about it, um, I want to hear about it. I want to hear how you've uh, honed that skill because it's very difficult whenever you're assessing your own stuff. Yeah, well, I'm sure too, like given what you were going through, like you wanted to keep working on that thing because it was probably distracting you from you know, dealing with a lot of stuff that you were eventually going to have to deal with. I imagine that had to play a part of it too. So absolutely. 100%. It was an escape. What do you guys do? This game has been around for a while, decade now, and the franchise has been around a lot longer than that. But what do you guys do to keep it fresh? Keep people coming back? I mean, this, this, um, I'm not just totally full transparency. Never played Guild Wars 2. Watched a ton of video on it. I'm not a huge MMO fan, but looks cool i like there's a lot of differences especially with the way like stories play out it seems like the story kind of plays out in a way that single player games play out which is interesting in an mmo type of thing and branching narratives and, and whatnot and uh it's like you guys are making just a ton of content all the time uh actually looked looked uh looked up when your first uh project the the, the nightmare dungeon got announced i saw you and i think one of your uh your programming mentor uh were talking about it and um, looked at all the comments on YouTube and people are like, man, this is the best. Uh, this is my favorite uh, release. This is my favorite dungeon. Uh, love this. Dun like so many people in the comment section just gushed over. I went on Reddit too, found a bunch of people who love that stuff. Um, so, I mean, clearly you guys got a, a, a fan base that is really engaged with what you're doing, but I mean, it must be hard uh, still trying to figure out how to keep this game fresh when you've been working on it for so long yeah uh it's a challenge it's a big challenge um so one of the big things that we try to focus on uh is how do we how do we preserve the uh the things that people have loved about our game over the last decade right uh the kinds of experiences that they look at this game and they say this is what this game provides being able to go out into the world and play alongside uh, huge groups of friends, you know, upwards of like 80, 100, 150 other people, uh, being able to go and uh, and tackle content uh, after a nine-year break coming into the game and feeling like, hey, because we're a horizontal progression game and we don't add a bunch of power increases with every expansion, um, if you were ready for the end game before, you're most likely ready for the end game now, so you can just jump right into the good stuff. Uh, taking kind of those core philosophies and pillars that we've built the game around 
um, and ensuring that we we aren't breaking them, but we might might bend them a little bit, right? Uh, you know, the the same kind of things that you loved doing in terms of going out into the world, exploring, having these dynamic events happen. Um, can we can we change the way that we filter them to the player? Uh, can we change how they're organized on the back end and push people back and forth between different uh, periods of time happening in these maps um, and uh, and saying, you know, like, hey, uh, there are multiple phases to this map and certain events might happen in this phase and certain events happen in another um, and really trying to inject some variety uh, into that. Uh, and I, I worked on encounters for a very long time uh, and I still do. And uh, one of the things I love about encounters design is that you can take uh, a bunch of mechanics and skills and, and abilities that players are used to, and uh, you can remix them and, and switch them around and, and just give slight variances to them and create an entirely different feeling encounter. You can change small numbers and, and add small effects here and there uh, to come out with something that feels entirely fresh. Um, and uh, and we, we recently did something similar uh, with the, uh, the hardest encounter that we had released into the game. Uh, it was called Dragon Void Challenge Mode, and that released in June of this year. Um, and uh, a lot of the design philosophy around that was uh, make the mechanics that players already know about, uh, put them together in an environment that demands that players play at their absolute best, and make sure that things are incredibly tightly tuned and timed so that people have to be on the top of their game, they have to be moving uh, and reacting as quickly as they possibly can. The margin for failure is practically zero, right? Um, and there's and in a game like Guild Wars 2, you've got tons and tons of options and abilities that are available to you that you can use for a variety of uh, different combat effects. You have the ability to put down portals and, and have players like warp around the arena to different spaces. Uh, you've got the ability to, uh, to apply Aegis, uh, which completely blocks the next attack, uh, or Stability, which makes it to where if you'd be knocked down or pushed back, uh, that it, it burns that stability instead. Um, and, uh, and so with all of these tools that players have at their disposal, um, this encounter was uh, basically kind of a love letter to the system and saying, um, we're going to throw everything in the kitchen sink at you. Not all at once, although maybe at the end of the encounter all at once, but uh, we're going to ask you to like really work together as a group and make sure that you've got answers to all of these problems ready. Uh, so that when we throw this challenge at you, not only can you move correctly, not only can you uh, communicate to each other correctly, but you can also ensure that your group as a whole has an answer to each of these problems. Uh, that is just, it's, it's one of those things where it's simple, uh, but really tuning it for perfection allowed it to feel incredibly exciting uh and we watched like a, a seven day uh world first race for that encounter for the first group to finally beat it uh and it was just so so incredible to see people get really excited about strategizing over that stuff um and there weren't a whole lot of brand new mechanics introduced in that encounter it was just a lot of things that people have uh come to know um, a lot of mechanics that they've seen in other fights that were all pushed together in different ways um, but it achieved what we wanted, which was getting the feeling of the toughest encounter in the game. 
and I think that kind of philosophy can be applied to GW2 as a whole, right? Take the things that people know have and have come to love uh, and just remix them a little bit, change them up, uh, subvert expectations uh, as, uh, as weighted as that term is, uh, but really, really try to make it to where um, people can't truly expect what's coming next. Uh, I think that's going to be really important. But you're still doing like it still sounds like a lot to get right. It's not like you guys are just like hitting the copy paste buttons like you're you guys are putting a lot of time and thought to it. But the, the foundation that's there is so strong as well. So that 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 certainly must make it a little a little easier. The thing that I, I've found over the last year that's uh, been a really great allegory for me um, and, and in world allegory is Legos. Right. Uh, so, you know. We've all played with Legos as a kid. Uh, you've got a bunch of bricks. You put them together. Maybe you get a kit that tells you like how to build, you know, your favorite thing, uh, the Batmobile or something like that. Um, but one of the the things that I've fallen in love with over the last year is uh, Lego has um, these uh, these sets that they create uh, out of recycled parts that were made in mass that there's just too many of them. And they have a team over there that uh, ideates on like, how do we use these different parts that we have way too much of to create something new and unique, but super satisfying and fun. Um, and I actually have an example of that uh, with the Lego orchid, which is like, it's an orchid, it's beautiful. I have this next to my plants, and uh, you know I don't have to worry about it falling over and dying like an actual orchid does. But, yeah, you wouldn't know that was <laughs> fake from the video. <laughs> but the uh, the fun thing about this is like a lot of these pieces are completely reused, just like you know old stuff that they've got lying around. Like the uh, the little buds are Demogorgon heads from uh, the Stranger Things sets. Uh, the the centerpiece of each flower is a frog. It's a pink frog that they have on there. Um, just like really creative use of, of the resources that they have available rather than saying, we're gonna build an orchid and so here are all of the brand new, unique and entirely never before seen parts that we're gonna put together. It's just like, can we do this at the same quality bar or even higher, I would say. Um, with a bunch of stuff that we already have. And that's kind of the philosophy of supporting a 10-year-old game, right? Sure. Well, that's a testament to, to your entire team because, man, people people still playing this, people still loving this game, man. So hats off to all of you. Absolutely. And uh, Cameron, you got a wonderful story, man. Thanks for stopping by and spending some time with us. This was... Uh, it was inspirational. If you're inspired by this story, I don't know. <laughs> you might need to get your pulse checked. So, man, thanks so much for, for sharing this with us. This is, this is great. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Graham. All right. That's going to wrap up our show for this week. We want to thank Cameron for being our guest. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud.